Acts chapter 26. So, this chapter deals with Paul's defense before Agrippa. It is the last interaction that Paul has with uh, a public official, if you will, before he leaves for Rome. And we have seen throughout these last chapters of Acts how Paul has been before the Sanhedrin, he's been before Felix, he's been before Festus, and now he comes before Agrippa. And we talked last week about the fact that Agrippa was the great-grandson of Herod the Great, the one who murdered all the children or had all the children murdered around the time of Jesus' birth because he was so afraid of any rival to his throne. Agrippa is his great-grandson. And he has a unique place within the the Roman Empire, if you will. He's not given a lot of territory to uh, be in charge of, but he is in charge of the temple precinct, and he's also in charge of the appointments of the high priest, which are very important and strategic uh, positions, obviously. So he carries a lot of of weight, and because he's half-Jewish, he knows a lot about the, the Jewish customs and traditions, as Paul is going to allude to here in a minute. I want to approach this chapter, though, from the standpoint of witnessing. And and obviously, the book of Acts is about sharing our faith and and, and witnessing and evangelization and all that. But this chapter really focuses our attention on that tonight. And so I want to come back to that and and reemphasize that tonight. And I actually want to begin uh, sort of towards the end of the chapter, in chapter 26, Uh, beginning in verse 27, where uh, Paul says to Agrippa, Do you believe the prophets, King Agrippa? I know that you do believe in them. And Agrippa says to Paul, In such a short time, are you persuading me to become a Christian? And Paul replied, I pray to God that whether in a short time or a long time, not only you, But also all those who are listening to me today could become such as I am, meaning become a follower of Christ, except for these chains. Paul's heart was that people become followers of Jesus Christ. We know that for many reasons. One, you just look at the study of the man's life, and his life was all about reaching people for Christ and making disciples. He wanted people to be followers of Jesus Christ. That was his heart's desire. And we also get that from the word for pray here in verse 29. It it is a word that speaks about Uh, our heart being reflected in what we pray for, in other words. What you and I pray about, what we pray for, is is, that's where our heart is at. That's, That's what consumes our heart. And one of Paul's great prayers was always praying for other people to come to Christ and to become followers of Christ. And I wanted to start there because, as we're going to see even in this chapter, when we enter into talking to people about faith, or even persuading Christians to become even more committed followers of Jesus Christ, we're we're engaged uh, in in a fight, and and, in battles, and in spiritual warfare, and all of that, and and, and even the struggle of, of people's flesh, and pride, and all of those things. And we need to make sure that we are bathing these people, and these situations and opportunities that we have in prayer. And so I just want to encourage you tonight that just like Paul, 
Keep praying to the Lord about people that you know that doesn't know God yet, that doesn't have a personal relationship with God. And keep praying for even Christians to be more committed to Christ and to truly become disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul was praying for. And by praying for it, again, it reflected his heart. God wants to develop in us a heart for others. A heart to reach others with the gospel. A heart to see Christians become more committed to Christ. And that is always going to be reflected in our prayer, our prayer life. You see. Because what we pray for is important to us. If we spend time in prayer talking to God about something, then that's a priority. That, that's, that's our heart. And God wants our heart, among many other things, to be directed toward focusing our, our heart towards the salvation of others and, in a sense, the, the discipling of Christians. With that said, I want to go back now and start at the beginning of the chapter uh, where this whole conversation takes place, and then we'll go through the chapter tonight. I want to find my place here also because I want to flip over here real quick. All right, I've got it. So Agrippa says to Paul in verse 1, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul held out his hand and began his defense. And we've talked about this word defense before throughout these last couple chapters of the book of Acts. It means to make a compelling and sound account of oneself uh, to persuade others from uh, solid proof. And, and God wants us to be able to defend, if you will, what we believe and why we believe it. And, and what I want to point out here is this. Many Christians, especially when it comes to witnessing to people that aren't Christians, one of the things that holds them back is they say, well, look, you know, I don't have a lot of answers, you know. And so people start to ask questions and stuff because I don't have all the answers. I'm just not going to witness at all. And God doesn't call us to be a witness for him and to testify before others to him based on how many answers we've got. Okay? The only answer that we need to have is the answer of the hope that we have within us. Now let me emphasize that. You can turn there if you like, but I, I want to read this verse again to you that I've read uh, before out of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where Peter says, But set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts, and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. In other words, it's not about answering all their questions. It's about just being able to give an answer to someone about the hope that you personally possess because Christ lives in us. That's the only answer that we need to share with somebody. All the other answers, that's fine, and, and it's not that we couldn't try to find some answers to their questions and all of that, but the main thing is, can we give some other person an answer of why we have hope? why we have confident expectation and anticipation about what's happening and going to happen in the future based upon the Word of God. That's the only answer that really we need to be able to give. And the reason I point out 1 Peter 3.15 with, again, this word for defense in Acts 26.1 is in the Greek language of the very same word. 
The word for defense, translated defense in Acts 26.1, is the exact same Greek word as the word found for answer in 1 Peter 3.15. Call it whatever you like, a defense, an answer. But when we are out there as Christians, God wants us to be able to have an answer for the hope that we have, that we possess. It's very personal. Can we give people those answers? That's part of being a witness. Then back to Acts 26.2. Regarding all the things I have uh, been accused of, Paul says, by the Jews, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate, blessed, favored, that I am about to make my defense before you today. Why? Because you are especially familiar with all the customs and controversial issues of the Jews. In other words, Paul knew that finally, instead of, instead of talking before a Roman that had very little understanding of, of Jewish theology and of the Old Testament and of Jewish customs and all of these things, that Agrippa was very familiar with all of this. He had grown up in that. He was half Jewish himself. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the Jewish customs. So Paul knew that, okay, this guy's going to understand where I'm coming from a little bit. And, and that gave Paul encouragement just to stand before somebody that would understand a little bit. You and I get that. You know, when, when we're going through something or struggling with something, there's always a, a better connection made with another human being if, if we know that they've went through sort of the same thing that we're going through or they have went through it or they're going through it. There, there's just a connection there. They get it and we know that they get it. That's sort of where Paul is coming from here. But I also want to point this out in verse 3. The word familiar, I think, is an important word that I don't want to pass too quickly over. Because it means one who knows to the point of being an expert. In other words, Paul's basically saying, Agrippa, I know that you are an expert in these things. And the reason I want to stop there is because I think to turn that term back upon us as Christians, that we have a responsibility before God as followers of Jesus Christ to become as expert as we can with the Word of God. To become familiar with it. No, we will never master it all. We will never understand it all. But I think the longer we are Christians, it is our responsibility to get very familiar as much as we can with this book. Because it's what we believe. And, and the more familiar we can become with it, the better off we will be. And the more then we can speak into the lives and speak the truth of God's word into the lives of others. There should be that. We live today, though, even amongst, you know, Christianity in, in uh, a time where there is a lot of lack of understanding of the Bible, even on a basic level. We sort of live in a biblical, illiterate time in our society, even amongst Christians. If you were to, you know, ask most Christians, could you even write down all 66 books of the Bible? Could you give me a general idea of who wrote those books and 
who the main characters are in each book and what is the main theme of each book of the Bible. That's it. Just, just go there. Most Christians today are not familiar enough just with that. And, and so it's like what we need to get familiar with this book. And just like people get really familiar with other things that in eternity really isn't going to matter, as we've said before, the time that we invest in the Bible is time that will count for eternity. And, and this is convicting to me because I'll just tell you when, you know, when I was growing up, just to show you, you know, the time you can spend on something and how you can master something if you really want to and your heart's in it. My mom can attest to this. I was a collector of baseball cards when I was a kid. Because back when I was a kid, they didn't even have football cards yet. Well, they did, I guess. But baseball cards were the thing. Tops baseball cards. And I literally collected all the baseball cards. I knew every player on every team in Major League Baseball. I knew what position those players played. I knew it all. I, and So, okay, if I can do that then I should be able to transfer that kind of understanding to God's Word as well. I should be putting as much time and effort, if, if I can learn those things and I can put my time into becoming familiar with certain things, then I can also become more familiar with the Word of God. And so I just want to encourage you to continue to do that and, and to challenge us tonight to be as familiar with the things as Christians that we should be familiar with in order for God to use our lives to speak into the lives of others. Notice what Paul asks of Agrippa here at the end of verse 3. He says, therefore, I ask you to listen to me patiently. That's all. Just, would you listen to me? I haven't had too many people willing to listen to me yet. Would you just listen to me? Would you... Attend to what I'm going to say. Regard, consider, and do it patiently. Again, that's a good reminder. Sometimes all someone wants and needs is for somebody to be willing to listen to them. And listen to them patiently. Not try to talk over them, not try to get something in, but just listen. And you and I, we appreciate every once in a while having someone just listen to us. And sometimes just being willing to listen to other human beings opens up opportunities for us to share Christ with others or to even share our commitment to Christ even with other Christians and to encourage them and their commitment with the Lord as well. So he says in verse 4, Now all the Jews know the way I live from my youth, spending my life from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. They know because they've known me from time past, if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of the hope in the promises made by God to our ancestors. Again, I want you to note something here, how Paul ties his hope with the promises of God in verse 6. That's key. Because our hope is that confident expectation we have in what is going to happen in the future. 
How can you and I have such confident expectation about what's going to happen in the future? Because we base our hope on the promises of God. A God who cannot lie. A God who everything He promises is going to happen exactly as He said, down to the minutest detail. And so that's where our hope and promises are tied together. Which is why if we want to build up our hope, start reading and studying and meditating and memorizing the promises of God. Our promises that God gives to us always are there to build up our hope. And again, we know that one of the great uh, hopes that Paul had was the resurrection. And that's really what he focuses on here at the end of the book of Acts. In fact, notice in verse 7, he says, though this promise is a promise that the twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. Most Jews weren't resting in the hope that they could have because they thought that the hope was something that they had to work for. And see, what Paul's saying is that that's why they're missing it. You and I don't have to work to be a people of hope. We just have to accept and receive the promises of God in His Word and rest in the hope through His promises. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to attain it. As many of Paul's ancestors and fellow countrymen thought that they had to. Concerning this hope, Paul says, the Jews are accusing me, your majesty. Why do you people think it is unbelievable that God raises the dead? By the way, this word unbelievable here is a key word. It means to be faithless toward God. We all operate by faith in our life. We all entrust ourselves and trust others and others. But, but unbelieving is when we are faithless toward God. Where God has said something and we're not willing to trust Him, place our confidence in Him, or believe in Him. That's what leads to unbelief. And Paul's saying, that's where they're at. They don't believe in the resurrection, even though, as Paul's going to point out here even to Agrippa, the Old Testament had instances where God raised people from the dead. Elijah raised people from the dead. Uh, Elisha raised people from the dead. So forget the New Testament. If you just want to use the Old Testament, my fellow Jew, I will point out to you, God raised the dead, right? Why do you think it's so strange that, that God raised Jesus from the dead? Cannot God raise the dead? And if we do not believe that, especially based on the clear evidence that God gives us of resurrection, then we are faithless towards God. Of course, then Paul goes on to share his own personal testimony. First, going to his past in verse 9. I myself was convinced that it was necessary to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus the Nazarene. And that is why I went, I, that is what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons by the authority I received from the chief priests, but I also cast my vote against them when they were sentenced to death. I punished them often in all the synagogues and I tried to force them to blaspheme because I was so furiously enraged at them, I went to persecute them even in foreign cities. Now, I want to go back to this word, these words, 
furiously enraged. Very interesting what Paul's saying here. Describing his own past. It's a word that means maniacal. In other words, Paul is saying, I at that moment was acting completely irrational. There was no reason for me to be that angry to where I woke up every day with such hatred and anger towards that group of people. And what that begins to show us as well as is that there is something driving that more than just Paul. You see, what we're going to learn here in a minute is there's spiritual warfare and and spirits that, that are that are behind these things. And it's just like today. If you try to share your faith with somebody and they get very angry or antagonistic, don't take it personal. There's something deeper that's driving that anger. And Paul even said, it was completely irrational. There there was no good reason. It's not like a Christian ever had done something terrible to Paul or his family to where he was on this personal vendetta to get vengeance. That that was never the case. But there was just this irrational hatred towards Christians. You see, that's fueled by something. And we have to remember that as well, which goes back and ties into why I began with this whole idea of prayer. And why it's important that before we start talking to others about Christ and and even witnessing and testifying and sharing our faith and even going out into public and rubbing shoulders with the world, that we make sure that we are people of prayer because we are already, in a sense, uh, in a world that that is not, you know, our friend, if you will. And we are in hostile territory as, as God's children. And therefore, we need to pray about all of these appointments and interactions that we have with people, even other Christians. Because there's always other forces at work beside the force, in a sense, that we can see. We're going to talk about this Sunday as we uh, continue our series on the essentials of our faith. And Sunday, we are in the last chapter of Ephesians, looking at spiritual warfare and the importance of it on Sunday morning. So notice what Paul goes on to say. Verse 12, while doing this very thing, as I was going to Damascus, once again, Paul begins to relate his salvation experience. With authority and complete power from the chief priest, about noon along the road, your majesty, I saw a light from heaven. He's describing the divine illumination that broke into his life at that moment on the road to Damascus. All people need divine illumination in order to have our minds and our eyes opened to God. We need that light, if you will, from somewhere else. There is not that light within us, as many people claim today. That light must come from outside of ourselves. God sends that light into lives. He sent that light into our life at some point. Whether it was through the witness of another Christian, someone else telling us about Jesus, a church service, whatever that was, God gave us divine illumination. And notice what Paul said then happened. This divine illumination was brighter than the sun, shining everywhere around me and those traveling with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Literally, why me? 
Paul. Why me? And then notice these very interesting words from Jesus to Paul. You are hurting yourself by kicking against the goads. A goad was just a sharp, pointed object. It's like Jesus saying, you realize, Paul, your opposition of me and my people and your resistance of me up to this point in your life is just like you're sitting there with your bare feet and you're continually kicking a sharp-pointed object. Doesn't it hurt, Paul? Doesn't it hurt? And what Jesus is saying is this. We... God gives human beings the free will to oppose Him and resist Him. But what Jesus points out is a very important principle here, and one that we should not and cannot miss. And that is, it is a hard, rough road. It is a hard way to go for anyone who opposes God and resists God. Because you can do it, but it's not going to be easy. Even those who look like their life is all good and, and you know, they, they want nothing to do with God and everything seems to be good, that, that's, that's what it might look like to us. But God assures us that the way of the transgressor is hard, the Bible teaches. And anyone who opposes and resists Jesus Christ in their life, it's just like they're kicking against a sharp pointed object. They're hurting themselves. We have to remind ourselves of that. Even in our own lives, we're only hurting ourselves when we say no to Jesus, when we resist his will for our life. It's not going to go well for us. We should just surrender and follow and be obedient because we're only making it a hard way for us when we seek to go our own way rather than the way that God has chosen for us. So Paul said, verse 15, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this reason, to designate you in advance as a servant and witness of the things you have seen and the things in which I will appear to you. I want you to notice something here in verse 16. And I'm going to flip back real quick if I can find it here real quick. Because I don't want you to have to turn there, although as long as it's taking me to find it, maybe I should have. I thought I was saving us a couple seconds. Okay. I want you to notice something very important here in verse 16. Notice what God is saying here to Paul. God is saying that he has designed Paul's ministry for him before he even became a Christian. Don't miss that. That's what God is saying to Paul in verse 16. I designed your ministry, what I wanted you to do, even before you became a Christian. Folks, that's not an isolated case. Listen to this from the Old Testament. Book of Jeremiah, chapter 1, verse 5. Here's what God says to Jeremiah. Before I formed you even in your mother's womb, I chose you. Before you were born, I set you apart and I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. That even goes a step further. That God had designed Jeremiah's ministry before he was even born. 
these two cases are not isolated. I want to make that clear. These are just two examples. God clearly has purposes and plans for each one of us in mind. And even before He created us and made us, He had His purposes and plans in mind for each of us. That is a mind-blowing thought. Because then we have to go, wow. If, if God had a plan for me in mind, a, a, a place of ministry, a, a type of ministry or whatever, even before I became a Christian and before I was born, is that what I'm doing? Am I doing what God designed me for? Am, am I doing what God created me for? Many Christians live their whole life never realizing the design of the designer for their life. Even though it was something that God had, had uh, thought out and planned before they became a Christian and before even they were born. Notice back then in Acts, Paul's, uh, Luke goes on to say in verse 17, uh, from God, I will rescue you from your own people, Paul, and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Notice something else now God is pointing out here to Paul. Again, why it's so important that we pray and bathe situations in prayer. Because again, we're talking about entering into spiritual warfare every time we talk to someone about Christ. Because it's not just sharing faith with them. It's literally they are, they are under the influence of Satan. They are in his power. They are in darkness. And they must receive divine illumination. We understand this principle later on in the New Testament. Again, I want to find this quickly. Listen to these verses from 2 Corinthians where Paul writes this. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing, among whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who do not believe so that they would not see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. Satan has blinded their minds. It's one of the reasons why we have to pray. It's why we've got to prepare ourselves because when we go out into this world and and seek to be used by God in the lives of others whether they're Christian or not we many times are entering into to spiritual battles and spiritual conflict and spiritual territory and it might not have anything to do with again us and this other human being there's other forces at work here that's why Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 6 we do not wrestle against flesh and blood we don't. We can't bring it down to that. It's so much greater and bigger than that. And that's, again, why we need to be in prayer.
So, in verse 19, Paul says, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, to the divine illumination I got, which implies people can be disobedient or non-compliant to divine illumination. They can be faithless toward God. They can be unbelieving. They can be unpersuadable, if you will. That just because divine illumination comes into someone's life doesn't mean that they're going to be obedient to it. We know that from even the first chapter of Romans, where God says through Paul, I gave the whole world light, that I am the creator of the world. My nature and, and the, the, the image of the Godhead is clearly displayed in creation. And every human being who's ever been alive is without excuse. Because my power has been clearly seen through creation. So God gave divine illumination through creation. But many human beings down through history, instead of being obedient to that light that God gave them, seeking more light, they looked at that light and went, nah, there's no God. Or, I don't believe the world came into being by the divine creation. It, it all got here some other way. So, it again reminds us that when God illuminates our lives, when He sheds light into our lives through His Word or through His Spirit, we got two choices. We can, like Paul, be compliant to it and obedient to it and follow that light. Or we can say, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to comply. I'm not going to surrender. I'm glad Paul did. We're all blessed because of it. And then he goes in verse 20, I declared to those in Damascus first, and then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds consistent with repentance. And notice something important here. Paul's laying out for people right from the very beginning. You realize that just to say, I believe in God, that that's, that's not enough. There is no such thing as just, yeah, I believe in God, but it never affects our life. Paul says, no, no, no. You've got to teach people and share with people. If someone truly takes God into their life and they've had a God reversal in their life, that there's going to be actions and deeds that accompany that or that are consistent with that God reversal in someone's life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things will start passing away. All things will start becoming new. There will be a change in someone who's truly turned to God. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple courts and were trying to kill me. And then notice verse 22. I have experienced help from God to this day. And so I stand testifying to both small and great, saying nothing except what the prophets and Moses said was going to happen. I want to actually start there at the end of verse 22. Notice that for Paul, he didn't need to share anything except what the Old Testament said. He didn't need to go outside the Bible. Because that's all the Bible was, in a sense, at this time. There was no New Testament yet. It was just Genesis to Malachi, and yet he's very clear here. He says, I never needed to use anything apart from the Old Testament. 
That's it. That's all I needed. The Word of God. So many today don't just trust the Word of God to do what God gave it to do. And somehow think, I've got to use something other than the Bible to reach into people's lives. No. The Bible's all we need. The Bible is all we need. It's a supernatural book, and it's sufficient to reach into lives and to change lives and to transform lives. But I want to go back to this verse 22, and this may be the last that we share tonight because I think this is so important. Because let's face it, Paul was a disciple of Jesus Christ. He he was a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, but his life certainly wasn't easy. In fact, from the very beginning when he gave his life to Christ, Jesus was very forthcoming with him. He says to him, you're going to know right up front, Paul, I'm going to show you how much you're going to have to suffer for my name. Okay, so, so don't get any, you know, illusions that your life and being a follower of mine is going to be this, this life of ease and comfort and all of that. It's going to be hard, but it's going to be a rewarding life and I'm going to use you to touch many people's lives for me. I mean, we think about even here in the book of Acts. He was, you know, stoned and, and, and hunted down and, and people were trying to kill him all the time. And then, you know, then he goes from this Roman official to that Roman official to this Roman official. He thinks he's going to get to Rome. And oh, he is going to get to Rome because God wants him to get to Rome too. But he doesn't get there the way he thought he was going to get there. Because that's the way it is many times. Many times as disciples of Jesus Christ, our destination and God's destination is the same. It's just how we get there is totally different. And Paul didn't see this coming. This wasn't the process he thought. Because even after he gets through all these meetings with these officials, then he finally gets on a boat, as we're going to see next week, to head towards Rome. And guess what happens? This huge storm comes up. The ship is completely destroyed because it's run aground and all of them barely escape with their life. And then Paul finally gets to shore. He's cold, he's dripping wet, so he just wants to build a fire and get dry. And as he's putting wood down or gathering wood to build a fire, this poisonous serpent, snake, latches onto his hand and bites him. You want to talk about somebody who had a bad day. And yet I want to direct our attention back to this verse. Because many times again, we may think, wow, God, I'm, I'm just going through one thing after another. Because sometimes we as, are going as disciples to go through seasons of our life where it is, it just seems like one hard you know, challenge after another hard challenge. And we begin to think, has God abandon me? Does God not love me anymore? What, what's the per- And we might not even understand the purposes or all the purposes of why God is allowing us to go through all this, just like he did with Paul. But Paul does understand this. He might not understand all the reasons why he had to go through this process before he finally got to Rome. But he knows for sure that God was there to help me every step of the way. He didn't keep me from all this happening to me. But he was my constant help. Now the word help can also be translated 
aid or assistance. But I love this. The word also means ally. In other words, think of the picture here. Because Paul chose Christ, and because Paul was following Christ, Paul knew that Jesus Christ was his personal ally. I think that's why, again, Paul made statements like he did to the Romans. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God I know is my ally, that He is there to help me, then it doesn't matter what's before me, what's in front of me, what I'm going through. I know God is there to help me and I'm going to get through it no matter how difficult or challenging it is. And again, it reminds us of something so important that we as followers of Jesus Christ need to nail down. And that is this. Following Jesus Christ and following His will for our lives does not necessarily mean ease and comfort. Paul's a great example of that. But what it does mean is just like with Paul, we will be able to testify that God has been there to help me up through every day up to this day. He's been there. He has been my personal helper. And as we even talked about Sunday with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, let's remember this too. There is no help like God's. There is no help like God's. He's the only one who has the resources and the capacity and the wisdom and all of that to truly be a help. And and God's help hits the mark every time. It's exactly the help we need at exactly the time we need it. But, let me say this, as disciples of Jesus Christ, it will come at the most opportune time for our spiritual growth and formation. That's why many times as Christians we conclude God's late. Right? God's way late here. God should have showed up long time ago. Why does God put us in those seasons where it seems like things are on hold and they're not moving and God's not showing up? Because it's in those waiting times where God is most impressed upon us and where our spiritual growth and formation is really taking place and where God can really get in and work at a depth that He cannot at any other time. And so when Paul says, God's been my help. God's help is like no other help. And God's help will come. It will be exactly the help we need at the most opportune time, but it will be the most opportune time not for us, not for our ease and comfort. It will be the most opportune time for our spiritual growth and formation to take place. Because what God is doing through allowing these things, as he did with Paul, is to make us more like Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul was learning even at this point in his life. I hope you will leave here tonight knowing God is your ally. He's not your enemy. He's not against you. He's for you. He is on your behalf. And everything that He does and everything that He wants to do and everything that He's doing is always for our spiritual good and benefit.
He is there to help. And though there will be days of great challenge and difficulty and heartache and pain and suffering, God will be there to help us through it every step of the way. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your promises. Because, Lord, we were reminded again tonight that it is in those promises that you've given that our hope lies. We can truly be confident, Lord, about the future and what you have planned for us because of the promises that you have made. Promises, Lord, that you want us to embrace. That you want us to seize for ourselves and take hold of and live by every day. Not promises, God, that sit on a page in the Bible, but promises that come alive in our life when we carry them with us every day through the day. So God, help us even tonight and tomorrow and the rest of this week to take your promises out of this book and to carry them with us, giving us hope and giving us help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.